Welcome to the December 2021 Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller, Senior Economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. And joining me today is Kenan Fikri, who is the Director of Research at Economic Innovation Group. Kenan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Leo. Uh, so Kenan, I'd like to talk with you today about two topics that you work on. Uh, the first has to do with entrepreneurship, uh, and the second is opportunity zones. So let's start with entrepreneurship. What have we seen happen to entrepreneurship during this pandemic? Yeah, it's been really interesting. So in the first two months of the pandemic, we saw entrepreneurship kind of fall off, fall off a cliff, right? As you'd expect, where you know people adopt a more conservative stance and get more risk averse. Uh, but then what happened next, uh, no one really expected. There was a huge surge in uh, applications to start new businesses, which is kind of the Census Bureau's uh, real-time indicator of entrepreneurial activity uh, that like shot through the roof through July 2020. Uh, and then they subsided a little bit from there, but stabilized at historically high levels, uh, such that um, you know, now, uh, so just looking at some numbers, you know, in 2019, there were 3.5 million uh, applications uh, for these employer identification numbers, which is what the measure they use to uh, gauge uh, interest in starting new businesses. Uh, by 2020, that number had shot up to 4.4 million. And it, come 2021, uh, we're on course to reach more than 5 million uh, of these. So a lot of them are going to be you know, solo entrepreneurs or Etsy sellers or anyone who needs an EIN number for any reason. Uh, but uh, to kind of weed out some of that noise, the Census Bureau also looks at uh, the ones that are most likely to become employers based on uh, uh, characteristics of the application. Uh, and those have exhibited a similar pattern. Uh, so, so far in 2021, we've seen more than uh, 1.6 million of uh, those uh, uh, likely employer uh, new business applications, which is 40% more than this time uh, in uh, 2019. Uh, so, you know, what's really exciting for those of us who watch this data closely and care about entrepreneurship is the longevity of the boom. Uh, you can kind of explain that early pandemic spike uh, with things like, you know, maybe people are formalizing businesses to get PPP money, or there's like pandemic noise uh, that can explain away a lot of that early stuff. But the fact that it's still going on now, uh, so deep into whatever state we're in, uh, makes it seem, you know, quite, quite meaningful and real. So has this happened before coming out of the Great Recession? Did we get something like this? We got nothing like this. The Great Recession, Recession kind of precipitated almost a lost decade in American entrepreneurship, where startup rates fell uh, by about 20% uh, with the Great Recession, and then didn't budge from there uh, uh, really all through uh, the eve of the pandemic recession. Uh, so you know, yeah, the Great Recession was totally different. So, uh, so it was how, a different experience too. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So how come? Why? Why, why is this time different? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know. The pandemic was a shock from outside the economy, which I think does make a difference. So the Great Recession was a more traditional financial crisis. Uh, credit was curtailed you know, significantly. Uh, asset prices fell and you know, wealth was just written off and evaporated from the US economy. Uh, and what we've seen in the pandemic has been just the opposite. You know, massive amounts of credit and stimulus were pushed through the system. Uh, asset values, you know, from homes to stocks and all have been, you know, on a, uh, kind of on a bonanza. Uh, and, you know, the pandemic era supports for households meant that, you know, income losses were pretty subdued. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd say that um, these pandemic era supports at both the household level and the economy wide level uh, kind of produced a situation where we kind of de-risked de entrepreneurship economy-wide. People were able to take uh, uh, kind of entrepreneurial decisions knowing that 
uh, you know, if they would have their home value to fall back on or their retirement portfolio was doing great and they thought, uh, you know, maybe why not? Uh, I think one other factor that's really different now is uh, the it comes down to the, the social, uh, emotional trauma in a way of the pandemic that people uh, were prompted to become really introspective and take stock of their lives uh, and, you know, maybe wanted a more fulfilling or independent or gratifying career and saw that in, uh, you know, striking out on one's own. Uh, and I think, you know, no, few other economic crises have been accompanied uh, have been accompanied by such a like deeply personal and introspective uh, experience as well. So I think in that extent, this is uh, wrapped up a little bit in the great resignation of a lot of mm -hmm. people reconsidering what they're doing uh, in the economy today. So what, what are the sectors where we're seeing the most growth in entrepreneurship and who, who are these entrepreneurs, the people that are, that are taking these risks and becoming new business owners? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, on the sectors, so first thing to note is that it's broad-based across sectors. So again, that's why this feels real, right? It's not just uh, one individual corner of the economy. Uh, so it, it's happening in almost every sector. Uh, if you're looking at uh, so-called kind of non-employer applications, so ones that look like they're going to just be a single person, uh, those are dominated by what you'd expect, so non-store non -store retailers. Uh, so this is kind of the shift to digital and the at-home economy. Like that's real, it's significant, it's in here, but it's, it's not the whole story. Uh, among the likely employers, uh, the uh, uh, applications have been highest in a lot of the sectors on the front lines of the pandemic. Uh, so in uh, 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 in uh, three quarters of the games, we're in uh, four sectors in total. So accommodations and food services, retail, health, and transportation and warehousing. Uh, so I think there's a mix here of uh, economic restructuring. So these are sectors that have gone through a lot of disruption, uh, new market opportunities that people are taking advantage of, uh, but also maybe, you know, we're seeing a shift of someone closed a business, which is not captured in the data. And now they're, they've reinvented themselves slightly differently. And that is being captured in the data. Uh, so I think there's a lot of adjustment noise going on there too. Um, uh, but some of it seems, seems, you know, genuinely new as well. Uh, when it comes to who's doing it, uh, that's, uh, uh, we, we have less information on the demographics. Uh, here, Rob Fairley, who's an economist at UCSD, though, uh, he's uh, looked into uh, the current population survey and uh, looked at the demography of active business owners in the U.S. And early in the pandemic, uh, he produced some really uh, troubling stats, like the number of uh, active Black business owners in the country fell by 40% or a, a massive amount. Um, but what's happened since then is that, you know, on most indicators, the kind of business owning population, or excuse me, for most groups, the business owning population uh, has really recovered. Uh, so now uh, for, um, uh, let's see, for uh, black business owners, there are actually 30% more in the current population survey now than there were in February, 2020. Uh, for Latino business owners, 17% more, female business owners, 8% more. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're still missing 4 million workers from the economy, but uh, business owners uh, have recovered, you know, and then some. Uh, and I'd expect a lot of a lot of these folks were pushed into entrepreneurship by job losses, uh, you know, working in uh, in sectors that, um, you know, were again on the front lines of that uh, the first pandemic shutdowns and all. Uh, it's, but it's it's telling and I think good that they were able to 
find entrepreneurial opportunities uh, instead of having to wait for jobs to come back, what have you. But uh, you know, the uh, Kauffman Foundation is, is a group that looks into like tries to gauge, so who's becoming an entrepreneur out of necessity and who's doing it out of real economic opportunity? And the necessity share has jumped uh, in what they look at since the pandemic. Uh, but that's, yeah, still, still I think, uh, good that the option is there for people. So why should we care about entrepreneurship, right? To your point, some of this might be out of necessity. So mm -hmm. the data might look like it's really good that the entrepreneurship is surging during the pandemic. You know, we, yeah. we, we might celebrate this. But at the same time, we have data that quit rates are higher among smaller firms uh, than in larger firms, that large firms, uh, for example, like Amazon, uh, tend to pay higher wages, provide more benefits than small mom and pop shops, uh, that you know, large firms sometimes can lead the way in the labor market uh, and push up wages, uh, not just for their workers, but for workers more broadly in the labor market. So you know, why, why this focus on entrepreneurship and this interest in entrepreneurship versus an interest in job creation more generally, regardless whether it's at small or large firms? Yeah, great questions. Uh, and so here, I think you know, I like to break kind of the entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurship into kind of three different groups. So you have kind of the self-employed, you have the mom and pops, and then you have kind of the more disruptive growth firms. And each one kind of plays a different economic role or uh, function. You know, I think self-employment is a is a great option for some people to have. Uh, and yeah, for them, you know, for per uh, personal reasons, it might be very important. Uh, mom and pops, they're vital uh, to the health and vibrancy of our communities. I think a lot of people like have a renewed appreciation for uh, just kind of uh, uh, just uh, the role of the local storefront in uh, uh, making them enjoy kind of the lived experience in the U.S. economy today. Um, but uh, uh, and even at the small scale, you know, entrepreneurship is it's a big uh cornerstone of household wealth in the country today uh here that the sba uh, uh this year was uh looking into kind of the share of um non-financial wealth uh that business equity represents and it's about it's about one-third of yeah every every dollar um for white families uh that's non-financial wealth uh comes from business ownership stakes uh it's much less for black and hispanic families so to that extent kind of the chance and privilege of owning a business reflects the broader inequalities that afflict American society today, but it can be an engine of upward mobility and uh, kind of intergenerational wealth building uh, that's important. Um, but, you know, at, at heart, I'm a classic kind of Schumpeterian economist, uh, and I firmly believe in the role of kind of the entrepreneur as an essential catalyst for economic change, uh, you know, helping us keep markets competitive, uh, you know, uh, keep innovations coming into the market uh, and even kind of pioneering new modes of work and new modes of, you know, uh, giving people opportunity in the economy. Uh, so like over over the 2000s and up through the Great Recession and then the 2010s, it was actually these high growth young firms that were disappearing even faster than mom and pops. I think that was under the surface of uh, the big story of the day that was uh, distracting everyone really is the rise of tech. Um, but uh, these these high growth young firms uh, really play critical economic functions in also driving net job creation uh, in the economy. And they haven't been, uh, they've been kind of on, on the decline for a couple decades now. So if we can, if 
somewhere in the data that we're looking at, you know, coming out of the pandemic recession, uh, if we're also getting a bit of a reset on that front and more of these companies do become kind of high growth firms, I think that's only going to benefit uh, American job creation long term, because at, at the end of the day, you know, uh, incumbent existing firms uh, often on net don't create that don't 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 create the net job growth that the country needs. You know, for every job that Amazon makes, there may be a loss in other firms and other corners of the economy. Um, but that delta year in and year out of uh, uh, kind of uh, you know, where are we getting job growth from uh, is really carried by these high growth young firms that uh, you know were missing from the Great Recession recovery, and I think we felt that. So hope, hopefully, uh, in this data, it's too soon to tell, but we're seeing some restirrings of that activity as well. So what, what makes it easier for people to start up new firms, right? What are, what are the barriers that prevent people from starting these firms? Yeah, I think, you know, what's making it easier right now uh, has to be the advance of technology and platforms. And that's a big difference from the Great Recession too, right? We didn't have, we didn't have Upwork. Uh, uh, we didn't even have Uber, I think, at that point, uh, where um, uh, people can uh, more independently uh you know, be, be an entrepreneur in one way or another, uh, uh, platforms like Etsy, et cetera, just uh, didn't have the scale that they do now. So to that extent, I think platforms have in a way enabled entrepreneurship to serve as a bit of an economic safety net after a job loss. Well, at least you can do something and find a willing buyer for your labor, even if your local economy is not doing great. Uh, so that's, that's one big difference uh, that I see right now uh, that I think is making it easier. Uh, and then in terms of barriers, yeah, in, in terms of barriers uh, there, so I'd say, you know, access to capital remains a big one and might be a constraint in, you know, translating some of these maybe temporary entrepreneurs or people who are pushed into entrepreneurship into folks who can grow and scale a business. Uh, you know, uh, we saw that female entrepreneurship is up uh, higher than uh, male entrepreneurship, uh, similarly uh, kind of black and Latino entrepreneurship. Uh, or business owner numbers seem to be doing a little bit better than white business owner numbers. Uh, but if that's out of necessity, and if you know they're starting smaller with less capital uh, than kind of their uh, than they usually do, or hold on, I'll fix this. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Often, you know, uh, uh, female or minority-owned businesses uh, they start with less capital. They have it. They have a harder time kind of getting obtaining growth capital uh, and. You know, I don't think that credit markets or the financial system has transformed enough with the pandemic uh, 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 crisis to change those fundamentals. So I think, yeah, th those barriers to kind of scaling and uh, and establishing uh, uh, that kind of high growth business is going to remain and going to mean that a lot of people who have started in the pandemic uh, are going to struggle uh, to um, really uh, yeah, su su succeed and grow over the long term, especially the necessity entrepreneurs who don't have a lot of money to fall back on. Have you seen any evidence you know, for or against uh, it, it, in terms of the expansion of government provided health insurance, the government exchanges has allowed people to be able to leave employers that were providing health insurance for them mm -hmm. and become entrepreneurs because now they can go out and purchase health insurance more cheaply on exchanges. Do you know one way or another if this is contributing to, to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I, I don't know one way or another, but I think I think it has to. I think that's an important question to uh, ask and answer here soon, because again, like that, that is one of, uh, you know, the, the cost of healthcare has ballooned over the past couple of decades. It has risen the cost of exiting traditional employment to become an entrepreneur. Uh, like that's undeniable. I think it has to be a drag on entrepreneurship and explain 
Uh, it also, you know, the current system makes it very expensive for a new startup to be an attractive employer by offering, you know, equivalently gold-plated healthcare uh, options. So uh, I think it, it's definitely going to be playing a role here. Uh, and uh, kind of a, a related social safety net uh, aspects uh, that I think is really interesting is, you know, in, in France a couple of years ago, this was before the pandemic, but they uh, made sure that unemployment benefits covered you for, you know, a period that was long enough to potentially start a new company. Uh, and uh, in a way, the pandemic uh, household support payments uh, allowed people to do something similar now if they wanted to uh, after a job loss. And uh, to me, that's really interesting and uh, uh, something that maybe we can build on as a lesson from the pandemic to uh, this combination of or the, the health insurance idea and uh, this unemployment support uh, might allow far more people to, to uh, see this as an option. Fantastic. So let's transition and talk about opportunity zones. So can you start off? What is an opportunity zone? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good place to start. So <laughs> an opportunity zone is a uh, low income census tract that uh, uh, or a low income census tract for a federal capital gains uh, investment incentive uh, that uh, uh, governors designated uh, these tracks back in 2018 uh, after Congress passed uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that opportunity zones, uh, the opportunity zones provisions were a part of. Uh, the idea itself was kind of born out of combination you know, geographically uneven recovery from the Great Recession combination, uh, you know, uh, a lack of progress in reducing concentrated poverty and persistent poverty in the country over the, uh, since the turn of the century. Uh, and um, yeah, so basically they offer a, a, oh, and by the time, you know, uh, OZs were wrapped into the uh, uh, tax, uh, uh, the 2017 Tax Reform Act, uh, they had, almost 100 bipartisan co-sponsors. So it was uh, an idea that you know, people thought uh, uh, it was time to, to uh, try to address this problem with, with a novel and new approach. Um, so basically, you know, they offer a series of capital gains tax incentives uh, and benefits for long-term equity investments in low-income communities uh, that you know, culminate in the prospect of potentially no capital gains taxes on something that you hold for 10 years or longer, which if it's a successful investment can be uh, a significant incentive. Um, so you know, we, know, we know what happened when the federal government drew maps of where not to invest, uh, uh, decimated neighborhoods and families for generations. Uh, Opportunity Zones kind of tries to turn that on its head and ask you know, what's possible when the federal government draws a map of where to invest instead. So, it's an incentive that kind of tries to bring distressed communities back into the fold of the broader economy by rewarding investors who uh, place their money there instead of you know the suburbs overseas or wherever uh, to do something that's additive or build a company. So this is it's still early, right? Yes. But what, what's the the initial results that you're seeing so far in terms of the economic impacts that these opportunity zones have generated? Yeah, so it's still it's still very early, and uh, uh, we'll probably get to this in a minute. There's there's very little data on what's actually happening out there, which is a big problem and kind of a cloud overhanging this whole experiment. Uh, but the uh, Government Accountability Office, so GAO here in DC, they uh, released a report on the first year of uh, OZ's existence in 2019 uh, and saw that you know, $29 billion in uh, OZ equity money uh, flowed or took advantage of the incentive. Uh, that's likely over 70 billion by now. So 2021, fast forward, you know, two more years after uh, uh, the GAO study window closed. So we're talking about significant volumes of money uh, that uh, you know we know are you know 
touching every state. Uh, and uh, we know that it's you know, diversified kind of by nature structure of the incentive that you can invest in a lot of different things with it. Uh, but a, a lot of it's going into, into real estate, uh, kind of rental or multifamily. Uh, and uh, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, a lot's, uh, uh, a lot's moving, but uh, unfortunately we, we don't know as much as we need to, or would like to about where it's going. Uh, however, you know, anecdotally, uh, locally in California, for example, uh, we know it's doing quite a bit to expand the housing supply and uh, with infill developments in places like, you know, Santa Ana or San Jose, California. So these are, uh, there are distressed communities, you know, and low income census tracts in, uh, uh, in, in those cities that, that were eligible and uh, based on just observations from news clippings and press releases, you know, a significant amount of money is going uh, uh, to things like that locally. Uh, also, you know, investing in, uh, there's a nice cluster of affordable housing investments and uh, investments in kind of minority business development and incubators in South Los Angeles. Uh, so you get the whole kind of gamut of you know, everything from market rate housing to affordable housing, uh, some investments into structures in San Bernardino to help uh, to uh, build the Department of Behavioral uh, Health, uh, Public Health uh, new facility uh, to yeah, kind of uh, uh, get minority business incubators. So it's, it's a whole range of things. That's so there's, there's, there's already been some criticism, though, even though it's you know, very early uh, to be assessing the impacts of opportunity zones. And that criticism is basically that it doesn't provide enough support for underserved communities relative to the tax breaks that they're generating for you know what are disproportionately wealthy investors. So, so what's your take on this criticism? Yeah, I, th I think it's it's a fair criticism and it's kind of natural, right? At the end of the day, here it's a investor incentive for low-income communities, and some people look at that and say <laughs> does not compute. Uh, so, I, I I think I I understand that, um, but. Uh, uh, and broadly, my, my take is that you know it, it's too soon to tell uh, what you know how it's going to shake out. But that the question of that balance in who benefits uh, is going to be critical to assessing whether or not this uh, experiment was beneficial or how to how to change it or reform it uh, in the years ahead to, in order to make it more effective. Um, but you know the the need is large and acute enough that I think a bold experiment here is is appropriate. You know a statistic that I. Uh, always kind of keep in the back of my head is that you know, two thirds of uh, the census tracts in metropolitan America that were uh, poor in 1980 are still poor today. Uh, so you know, the economy's changed a lot, investment habits have changed a lot, a lot of policies have come and gone. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, the dial is not moving uh, for vast swaths of the map. And that's you know, a couple generations already turning over in these communities. Uh, and at heart, you know, OZ's is a place-based incentive uh, and uh, you know, I do understand that a lot of people are going to bristle at the idea of uh, of you know using public money to benefit poor people in any way that's not you know a direct check uh, or an in-kind good or service. But if we know that poverty also has causes that are rooted in geography, uh, it does seem intuitive that you know we want to uh, play, we want to uh, you know experiment with tools that also address geography and these geographic concentrations of poverty. Um, so if you look at you know, past programs, generally the more strings that you attach to uh, these investment incentives, the less they're utilized and the less that they do. So OZ's part of the controversy is that they adopt a very, uh, a completely different approach, almost 180 degree difference, where uh, they say that as long as you're investing you know, the qualifying money in the qualifying places, 
and doing something that is you know additive uh so you're building something new or infill or occupying something that's vacant or building a new company uh you're eligible for the incentives so you know they, they take a step back and say you know we're not going to mandate that the housing be any more affordable than the community does uh because you know maybe communities need a mix of housing uh and uh, the federal government has other tools to support and subsidize the, the development of only affordable housing so don't get me wrong, it is financing affordable housing and nonprofit spaces and all sorts of things that directly benefit, uh, but uh, that stuff's not 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 mandated. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's going to take some rigorous study of how conditions in these communities changed and outcomes for people changed relative to uh, the money that could be potentially large that investors uh, uh, benefited from uh, with, with those ease. So stay so, tuned. So, fin so final question on this why you know you're talking about place-based policies versus direct mm -hmm. checks right why not just incentivize people to move to places that have better job opportunities right why give an incentive to invest in a location rather than giving you know benefits money to people directly and the example that i'll give uh is based on some studies uh from brown university about hurricane katrina that suggests that the residents of distressed areas in Hurricane Katrina uh, in New Orleans, uh, they did better than they would have done uh, by moving to Atlanta or Houston, right? That there were better economic opportunities. They broke the cycle of poverty. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you think about those kinds of data points, right? How do we reconcile policies versus just trying to improve the well being of those who live in a place? by giving them money and potentially helping them move to, to locations with better economic opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm sympathetic to that, too. And I think, you know, in a uh, 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 I think that you probably need you, you need both because uh, uh, yeah, yeah, so you do need both. But at the end of the day, you're never going to be able to move everyone. Right. So the question is, what do you do about uh, the majority of folks who are likely going to be uh, uh, left behind, uh, and in a way, kind of moving people out only makes it harder for things to recover and get better uh, for those who are left behind too. So I think uh, uh, it's you know it, 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 it is a challenge in how many people do you want to reach as well? Like, do you want to give this family the opportunity to get out of poverty now? Yes, but like also let's have another tool to try to improve the conditions. Uh, in the places that they're leaving for all of the, you know, many more multiples of people who are likely left behind. Uh, I think politics has also uh, answered this to some extent too. Like, uh, unfortunately, the uh, economists can't master plan uh, the economy here. And at the end of the day, you know, dying places are still represented in Congress. Uh, and it's a political question as well. Like, what do people want from public policy? And I think a lot of them do want, you know, investment in their communities and a commitment to a place that they love and have chosen to live in. Uh, so to, uh, I'm kind of pragmatic in, in that sense too, that uh, there is a, there is acute demand uh, for these types of policies and that's not going away. Uh, so let's let's learn from them, let's pilot different models and see uh, what maybe can start start moving the dial. There's another data point that I think you know contributes to this discussion, which is, over 50% of Americans live, uh, adult Americans live within uh, 10 miles of their mothers. Uh, and that's because mothers provide a important service, which is often childcare, yep. you know, uh, uh, as well as the love and affection, right? Yes. Childcare. <laughs> and, you know, when you think about people moving away from better economic opportunities, right? 
the example with Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans is that you moved entire communities of people together, which is very difficult to do, right? Yeah. And, and so they were able to retain their social networks and their support networks as they moved to new places. But if you're talking about, you know, people moving one-on-one, you know, that, that means that they are severing these social networks and it often becomes much more expensive. You know, this is based on a study called moving to opportunity. It often becomes much more expensive for, you know, a family that has severed social links to be able to get the childcare, get the assistance with, you know, healthcare, um, you know, if, if one of their children are sick or if a family member gets sick. Uh, and, and so this is why, you know, I, I agree with you that there's this benefit of investing in an entire location because it simply isn't possible to move entire groups of people uh, together all at once to better to locations with better economic opportunities. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is really interesting about the social networks remaining intact. Uh, I think I, I, I uh, know, known like the headline finding, but not that really important, uh, uh, really important piece of the puzzle there. Yeah, uh, cool. Yeah, so Kenan, thank you so much. Really insightful conversation. Uh, I'm glad you were able to join us and, and thanks for taking the time to talk us through uh, two topics, entrepreneurship and opportunity zones. Very happy, Julio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy right. holidays. Thank you to you as well.